at that point, it is good to raise your voice to convey an expression of disappointment, if not anger. And to your point, felt there was much more acceptance, particularly of junior individuals speaking up, giving their opinion. So I'm experiencing that we don't have a rapport going on here. That's what I feel is going on here. But I have no clue what's going on for you. But something's here. And literally just naming what is in the room with those two people. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. I first met our guest today at an event in Germany. I think it was a couple of years ago. It was an IMEX conference in Frankfurt. I was facilitating a panel on one stage and just a couple of areas along from the stage I was facilitating on, my guest and her colleagues were running a listening collective, uh, a series of workshops about how we listen to each other, which anyone who knows me will know that absolutely fascinates me because it goes to the heart of a lot of what I talk about. So I went along, introduced myself to them, joined in with one of the workshops, and we've stayed in touch since and reconnected at an event in Nottingham more recently. And during that conversation, I said, you really should come and join us on the Connected Leadership Podcast. So as I mentioned, she's a co-founder of The Listening Collective, an organization forged from a deeply held belief that when people thrive, then their organizations do too. She's a former senior operations leader in a top global banking organization and an experienced senior leader. In 2018, she trained as a relational guest psychotherapist and knows firsthand that how we feel about ourselves, our teams, and our work is as complex as being human itself. So having had those conversations with her, having looked at some of the writing she's done and looking at her work, I thought that an interesting theme for our conversation today would be what connects us and keeps us connected with a little heading of me, you, and us. So let's go just from me and make it us. And welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. My guest today, Dawn Ray. Dawn, thank you so much for joining me. You're very welcome. And we're already connected because your photograph is actually on our website. Ah, brilliant. And that I didn't know. I'm going to go and explore that straight away after this call. When I introduced you, I I mentioned that you had a senior operations role in a global banking institution, and then you retrained as a, a Gestalt psychotherapist. We have mm-hmm. talked about Gestalt psychotherapy on the podcast before, but for those who haven't heard that podcast, perhaps you can introduce what that is. But also, what made you move from the security, let's be honest, of that, that senior role and going back to studying and then on the journey you're on now? So I studied and worked at the same time. So I left one role and was always interested in what, as a leader, what happens between people. It was always like, what happens in between people, between a manager and a direct report, between a team, between teams in an organization. So I went off to look into organizational psychology, thinking that would be the answer, like that would be what would make me a better leader. And I actually realized it's not the ology part I was interested in. It was the being with people. I don't want to study about people. 
It's the being with and the complexity of what happens when two different people meet and how actually that seems to be the glue, the intangible something that happens in organisations. And so I started the course thinking it would be useful for work and then completely fell in love with Gestalt psychotherapy and the kind of philosophy that that stands for and how I believe we are or should be in the world that I, halfway through my training, left the corporate world entirely and set up the Listening Collective and uh, became a Gestalt psychotherapist. I love that. It's not theology. One for Jewish grandmothers everywhere, for anyone of our generation <laughs> uh, might remember. Yeah. Um, yeah. And for listeners outside the UK or younger listeners will wonder what the hell I'm going on about right now. But we'll leave that one for them to go and Google. But also I love this image of it's what happens between people, that space in between. So you mentioned the Listening Collective there, and I guess that goes to a degree to what happens between people. So why don't you tell us about the Listening Collective, what you aim to achieve and, and what led you down that route and how that fits in, all fits together? Yeah, yeah. Ostensibly, it's coaching. So it started with my business colleague asking if I could help him listen to some people in an organisation that he was already working with. He's a, a consultant and he, he had an organization going through a massive amount of change. They'd bought up organizations across Europe. The leadership team were struggling to kind of make sense of all of that for themselves and, and needed somewhere to kind of explore what was going on and help them lead the organization. And he rang me and said, would you help? Like, you're going to be good at this stuff. Would you just help me listen to some senior leaders? I was like, I can do better than that. You can have all of my time because I'd literally resigned the week before. And it kind of started from there. And it's coaching, but we deliberately call it coaching by therapists. So all of our coaches are trained psychotherapists. And it's because we come from a, a philosophy that when we go to work, when we approach anything, work just being an example, you bring yourself. You bring all of your experience, all of your feelings, all of how you see your world, how you see a situation, you bring yourself. And so we will start with the work situation. But then we'll also be able to explore safely what else might be going on for that person that is getting in there. Where are they stuck? Is it them? Is it the situation? Is it something else? But because we're all trained psychotherapists, then we can work on the individuals and particularly Gestalt, the situation itself and the environment. Then we can put all of that together in a holistic way and coach from that perspective. And we do it deliberately confidentially so we ask all of our clients to sign confidential agreements that that never goes anywhere we don't report back to hr we don't give reports because we believe that each person's experience is unique and they need a safe place to help them get unstuck whatever that might be the power of listening makes a lot of sense from a psychotherapy perspective and a coaching perspective and i would argue even though i'm neither that it is one of the key skills that a good psychotherapist or coach should have, or in my case, a good mentor. What about for a leader? How good typically are we at listening to direct reports, to colleagues, uh, and to, to other people around us? How good are we as a species at listening to each other? And if we do fall short, where do we fall short? I think our intentions are good. I think we all want to listen. We've all been on the active listening course. We all know what we're meant to be doing. I think what really gets in the way is either sometimes personal agendas, but more often the situations that we're in. 
So becoming more interested in task and focus and deadline rather than actually what the other human being is actually telling us. And so we live in this world of how we think things should be or ought to be rather than dealing with the reality of what's actually going on with the other person or what's actually going on in the conversation. We talk a lot in the Listening Collective about conversations that happen underneath the table. So, But that's the one that's really driving the conversation. And it's only in the active listening and the actually stopping to be with what is really happening, even if what really is happening is quite uncomfortable, and often it is. People avoidance of conflict is a big thing that we work with. But actually, I think what really gets in the way of listening is the, the forces that drive us to you know, avoid what's actually going on between. You've mentioned a couple of things more than once. One is what's going on between people and the situation that they're in. So let's talk about that first. How do we as individuals recognize when we are being driven by something more than what we're trying to achieve long term. So when we're being driven by the situation, by a deadline, by internal politics, and how can we consciously and ultimately subconsciously pull ourselves out of that and engage with people in a much more constructive manner? That's a brilliant question. And I love that you've asked it in a how, not in a why. Um, <laughs> we spend a huge amount of time talking to people about how they would recognize this and we talked before didn't we about me and understanding myself and how why that's important this is exactly why that's important because if we're not listening to what's going on for us the little clues that we're tense that we're nervous that something you know like that doesn't quite feel right you know all of those clues that make us realize that we're actually doing something because we're being driven by a false deadline or a value that we don't necessarily agree with they're there um but we don't always stop to to check out what's going on for us so what can we do to force ourselves or to build the habit of doing that you know i don't know if you're going to talk about meditation or journaling or whatever it might be <laughs> but what are the good <laughs> what are the techniques we can use consciously <laughs> to say is there anything what am i doing to block a genuine connection with this other person and a genuine conversation. In the situations you're talking about, meditation doesn't really help, right? I can't sit there in a business meeting or hang on a minute, I'm just going to have you know a couple of minutes of meditating. So what you can do is li like literally pay attention to what's going on in in your body. So there could be a bodily response, you know. Like I I know f personally, I tense my legs when I'm in a situation I don't like. Um, it may be that I pay attention to my breathing because actually, I mean, th there's been a, too much written about breathing, I guess, but regulating our breath does tune us in to where we're at. But there's, I think there's also something about being alive to what the other people in the room are saying and responding to what they're saying from a place of what, like the thought that came in my head that disappeared and then the thing I'm actually ought to be saying paying attention to the things we throw away that often is a massive clue like I'll think something like well he's being a bit of a insert comma but then we we say something that we think is the correct thing to say and often it's the things we ignore and paying attention to the things that we've like quickly shoved to one side and actually what I might not still not say that thing but it's the curiosity we have in 
I'm thinking something, I'm feeling something, and the the gap between what I'm thinking and feeling and what I'm choosing to say or how I'm choosing to be and noticing that gap. How important then is, so what Covey talks about active listening, and he talks about how too often we're we're starting our answer before the other person's finished speaking because we've made up our mind what we're going to say. And we should actually be more comfortable with gaps between contributions in Mm -hmm. conversation. And I've noticed, and, and I'm only conscious of it now that I talk about it, that one of the things I've noticed about my conversations with you is that there tends to be a pause before you answer much more than many other people. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm getting from all of the acknowledgements in your response that you agree with Covey there, and we need to be allow space to think through our response before we respond. Is that something that 100%. you do thoughtfully? Yeah. How do yes. you build that habit? Oh, crikey, that's a good question. How do you build that habit? How do you build that habit and how do you make yourself okay with uncomfortable silences while you're coming up with your response or waiting for the other person's? So for me, the language I would use would be around building my own ground and my own security. Um, Like, am I comfortable in my own skin? Like, how do I feel in this situation? Do I feel capable? Do I feel comfortable? Do I feel safe? My word of this week is adjustments. Like what adjustments am I making to how I want to be versus how I need to be and making that assessment? And I think I would even go further than gaps, like being comfortable with silence. Like we're too busy sometimes doing and saying and actually having a moment silence and being comfortable with not like half an hour, but you know, a few seconds of silence just to check in what I really need from this conversation or what I really need to say, what actually is important, I think is a a skill that it's a bit like long distance running. You know, there's no easy way to get good at it. You just have to keep trying. You just have to keep consciously reminding yourself that like, what is actually going on for me right now? What do I really need to say? And you might choose not to. And again, that's a lot of the work we do. Like, that there's a choice, but in that silence, in that space, there's giving yourself the choice with how you respond rather than an automatic response. Can that silence, can that pause be a gift to the other person as well? In that, A, a you're listening to them more actively and they can feel that. But secondly, you're giving them the space to add to what they were saying, to add a further thought to that. I mean, I, I could cheekily kind of reverse the tables and say how is it for you that I leave more silence what does it do for you I think in terms of hosting a podcast it took a little (laughs) bit of getting used to because you're very conscious of how that comes across to people listening but once I worked out what was happening which you heard listeners can hear live going ah that's what the pauses are I, I then recognize that that changes my relationship with it. The better you get to know people, you start to, I think, become more comfortable with their particular style. And one of the things I personally don't like is, and it happens to me a lot, perhaps because I talk too much, but I don't like people talking over me when I'm making a point. And it happens a lot in conversation. I think that is a cultural thing. So mm-hmm. I appreciate it when people pause and, and let me get to the end and pause as well. 
And this is a really beautiful example, I think, of what we're talking about in the me, you and us, that like, I sensed that uncomfortableness in our previous conversations as well. And that was because I was deliberately not talking over you. I was deliberately leaving you space to say the things you needed to say. And I could maybe sense some of your uncomfortableness and you were wondering what was going on for me. And in that gap that we left in between and the technology, the situation meant that felt a bit stressful. And, so, and, and what we're doing now is absolutely gorgeous because we're stepping into what was going on for each of us. And that's what, what we mean by what happens in between. Like your reality and my reality meet somewhere. And do we have the security to safely explore that? Yeah, I think that's a very fair point. And, and one of the things, what was happening for me was I was wondering if there was a lag, a time delay in terms of when you were speaking <laughs> and when I was hearing you. But what is interesting is, and I was going to say this to you after we stopped recording, but hey, I'll, I'll share it as it's part of this discussion. We tried three or four times earlier in the week uh, and we just kept having technical issues. This conversation is actually richer, more energetic and in better flow than those attempts. And I don't think that was the technology. I think it was getting into flow in the conversation. And maybe it's because we are airing this. So, um, yeah, yeah it, it's worth pursuing. under the table. I love it is, that phrase. It was the conversation we were having under the table. Yeah. I think that's our new title for the podcast episode. I'm just writing that down because <laughs> it's, it, it's such a lovely phrase. I probably should just phrase. say that I, l I learned that phrase from a book called The Bridge. And it's called The Bridge, A Dialogue Across Cultures. Brilliant. We'll, it's a we'll series add, of essays about meeting difference. We'll add that in the show notes as well. We'll get a link to that and add that in yeah. so that people can find that. The other thing that it, it raises for me is the one of the conversations I have with a lot of the people I mentor and that I work with is how do they persist when there's no rapport with someone? And actually, sometimes it is just, persist just stick in there because the rapport can come and going to what you were saying earlier part of it is rather than dismissing someone because the rapport isn't there it's more about asking yourself where you are in that conversation and where they are in that conversation absolutely so that you can yeah. move towards each other close more as a therapeutic coach in that situation i would be saying to somebody what would happen, do you think, if you just named what was going on? So I'm experiencing that we don't have a rapport going on here. That's what I feel is going on here. But I have no clue what's going on for you. But something's here. And literally just naming what is in the room with those two people and what do people imagine if they just slowed down even to that micro level of that. So rather than persisting and going with my agenda and what I think is going on here, there's sometimes a real magic in saying, I'm just going to stop. Like, this isn't working for me. Some, what's going on? Like, what's just happened? And naming what is. I want to take a step back. And this is a fascinating conversation, by the way, and, and nowhere near any of the questions that I prepared. Uh, but, <laughs> but I love it when that happens. I, uh, <laughs> I, I want to go back to, I, I mentioned earlier that you had raised a couple of things multiple times. And I... Regular listeners will know I always go back to my promises on things I, I want to raise. So, <laughs> so, so the, the, the second one was we've talked about understanding what's in the room for you. And we talked about it from a situational perspective, particularly. 
But the other thing I want to look at is what's in the room for you in terms of who you are, what you bring to the table. So that, you know, when we sit in front of someone, we have all of these preconceptions, unconscious biases, comfort zones, the people we feel happier being surrounded by. And that will impact how we engage with other people who don't conform or who do conform to those perceptions, biases, and comfort zones. How important is that? How does that impact the way we connect with people? And and again, how can we be conscious about that and address it? I think this is at the absolute hub of when two people meet, what goes on in between. Biases are inevitable. So I think one of the first things that I would always start with on this topic is bias, prejudice is a strong word, but preferences, like they're just how we see the world and our experience of the world. So so they're there. And and I think sometimes it can be a really vulnerable place to say, actually, I have them. Like we all have them. We all have these things that play through, not even consciously. For me, what's important is that one, we can find a way to acknowledge that and know that we cannot possibly know what somebody else's existence is like. I have my business partner, Matt, who's I'm here with today. He has a lovely phrase. He talks about it as we talk about walking a mile in someone else's shoes. I can walk a mile in your shoes, but I'm still not you. They're still your shoes, not mine. So there's something about how we approach the conversations with that in mind and and know that I leave gaps. I can't possibly know what your existence is like. So there's something about knowing I have bias, knowing I will see the world and have gaps in how I see the world from how you see the world. And then it becomes about my curiosity, my openness, my willing to hold loosely what I believed in, to be vulnerable, to use that word, and ask questions. And there's there's another lovely phrase that I like that we use a lot called moments of bafflement. And that's not mine either. That's a guy called Mark McConville. But he talks about moments of bafflement as in, I'm talking to another person, like the obvious examples, and he wrote about it in an article about race and, and ethnicity and colour, um, that if I'm confused, if I feel a bit shamed because I've said the wrong thing, because that happens in this space, doesn't it? Like we feel like we've got something wrong or we've somehow not said the right thing. If I'm feeling that shame and that uncomfortableness, can I stay with the bafflement? Because if I'm baffled, and there's something I don't understand. There's an opportunity for me to learn, but I can only learn from you. I can only understand your side of the moon if I'm willing to be vulnerable and open about it. And I think too often our shame shuts us down or we feel like we should know the answer or we should know what it's like to be insert, you know, minority group. And therefore we kind of leave this strange gap in the middle where we kind of miss each other. There's, so there's be a fr- more would be the short answer. There's a phrase that I came across years and years and years ago that I love, and that is be bizarre. Um, no, be, um, ah, it's, it was in my head and it's gone. It's one of those phrases you talked about earlier <laughs> uh, that, that was in my head and, and went again. Uh, no, I think it was It'd be bizarrely curious. Uh, yeah. I think it is. It was be bizarrely Beautiful. curious. And, and it is. Bizarrely and it is, curious. It is a topic that we have talked a lot about on the podcast over the last year or so. I, I, I regularly quote Daniela Lander, the f- former 
a talent lead at Google who came on the podcast and, and talked about stop trying to be the most intelligent person in the room or the one who knows all the yep. answers and be the Absolutely. one who learns yep. the most. Uh, the, yep. the other thing I want to pick up on this point about bias and prejudice and, and preconceptions is that when we talk about unconscious bias, for example, we think you mentioned ethnicity as an example. We think about difference, obvious difference a lot of the time. So ethnicity, gender, sexual preference, whatever it might yep. be. Bias doesn't have to be about that at all, does it? It, it can simply be as a relatively short person, I find myself more comfortable with other short people. For example, it might be... Um, well, we'll get I, along I, just fine. <laughs> I'm also a short Yeah, person. exactly. That's probably what we do. Uh, it, it might be that I, I find myself, you know, you might struggle with people of a different generation. You might struggle with people yep. who you feel just have a different... Um, they're more transactional in their speech, whereas, you you know, they like to get to the point and you're, I, I want a bit of small talk first. So they're an introvert, you're an extrovert. There can be all of these different reasons for bias and it doesn't have to be the ones that carry the headlines all the time, does it? Not at all. And what they all have in common is they hit on fundamental human emotions of fear and safety and that I'm not okay here. And then when fear and our safety is jeopardised, that's when we behave in odd ways because we're trying to keep ourselves safe. Enhance your mentoring skills with the Financial Times Guide to Mentoring by Andy Lapata and Dr. Ruth Gotian. Secure your copy early by pre-ordering today on Amazon or your preferred bookseller. So the safety element goes to the comfort zones that I talked about. So, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I gravitate towards people like that because I feel supported, comfortable, embraced, acknowledged, whatever it might be in that environment. So with all of this in mind, what can we do to embrace our differences? And by that, I mean the, the differences that we're talking about, the differences in attitude, in approach, in way of speaking, in way of engaging, the, the visible differences, the ethnicity, gender differences, whatever it might be, but also differences of opinion. Because in a lot of the, yeah. the, the disconnect that we see between people comes because I think we should do something one way, you think we should do it another. And rather than trying to find the middle ground, we've seen it in the British Parliament in the last week, you know, which has gone into meltdown because, and, and I've been thinking about this a lot, uh, and, and when this podcast goes out, it, it's still relatively recent, but I don't know when people are listening to this. Uh, just to refresh memories, um, the, the Scottish National Party uh, introduced uh, an oppo- opposition day motion about uh, calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. And both the Labour and Conservative Party introduced amendments. And there's a lot of gotcha politics in there. It was all about showing the other party up, forcing them into a, a corner, yeah. into a position. And I was looking at this and thinking, if the Scottish National Party were honest about what they're trying to achieve in terms of Gaza, and I, I do believe they feel strongly about the topic, but I also feel strongly they're trying gotcha politics. But if they were honest about it, yeah. rather than trying to highlight the difference of Labour's approach, for example, they would be saying to Labour, how could we work together to find a motion that we can get the whole House to pass? Yeah. So how do we get into that space? Crikey, that's a huge question, isn't it? Well, I think you just used the, one of the words I would use. Like, how honest are we being with what we're trying to achieve? 
and how honest are we being with the other person and how honest are we being with ourselves? Like what's really driving our motives for doing something? My LinkedIn profile says peddling real and honest dialogue. I'm a big advocate of what's really needing to be said and what isn't being said. And I've used this word already, haven't I? Conflict. Like how do we actually enter into, I'm putting my fists together, obviously this is audio only, of like how do we actually meet what's going on? And it's about being honest and it's about not avoiding conflict and not avoiding Like politically, that's a minefield because people are trying to manage all kinds of peripheral agendas going on. But what if we didn't avoid, what would happen then? We had an episode very recently with, and I think it's this episode that I'm thinking of, with Dan Druckmann, who's been an international negotiator, global peace accords and so forth. And I think it was the, 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 the conversation with Dan where he talked about not all conflict is bad. And actually, nope. conflict has a bad name, but it helps us get somewhere, doesn't it? So how can we channel conflict in, in conversation, in internal politics, to get to that place? So thinking about what we're trying to be honest about, what we're trying to achieve, my interpretation of that or, or an element of that is that all too often we're so focused on our own personal agenda, on being right, we don't allow space for us being wrong. And the honesty, is it about us being seen to be right or is it about getting the best solution, even if it's not the one that we've come up with? So how can we channel conflict with the end in mind to create a really honest, open conversation where nobody loses face because it's not their solution, not their route that we go down. I think we create the conditions whereby it's all right not to be right. So this podcast called the Connected Leader, right? Connected Leadership I Podcast. Think, yeah. I think in leadership, I think in business and my experience of being in business, there's a power imbalance between leaders and their teams, and I think channeled correctly the permission giving of senior people being seen to accept things being wrong, entering into a conversation, actually shutting up and listening to the things that people are saying and and acting on them, I think sets the conditions in which the fear doesn't get triggered to a point where people decamp into their own positions and have to be right or wrong. There's something about, and it's complex and nuanced and doesn't happen overnight, but there's something about how each of us show up. That's why we say when people thrive, organizations thrive. Because if leaders can show up and set a condition and an agenda where people feel safe to step into some of these difficult places, then gradually, if that becomes a culture, I think we slowly start to move where the lines are of what is and isn't acceptable. And another word I would use is we stop being binary. Like the world isn't binary. I think we need to stop being right or wrong, black or white, you know, this or that. And the press at the minute are full of it. Everything, you know, everything has to be, this is right and that's wrong. And I think with good leadership, an effective use of the power that we have and the privilege that we have, we can slowly change the needle on it. Can I just say hallelujah to that? You've really hit on one of my hobby horses. Not perhaps something that I've talked about a lot on the podcast, but personally, 
it's something I feel really strongly about. And, and, you know, as I've already demonstrated and regular listeners will know, I follow politics very closely and it frustrates me how binary the world is presented and decisions are presented. And I think it leads us into a, a lot of problems, a lot of trouble. And complex problems do not have binary solutions, or rarely have binary solutions. No. Uh, we don't have right or wrong. One so of the things you. we talk about a lot it is complexity, like how we need to embrace complexity sometimes. You know, sometimes things just are complex and looking for simple solutions to complex problems creates division, divisiveness, people are disaffected, it creates more polarisation. I think the whole thing escalates into a, a binary, polarised world, which sounds like you experience too. And I just think that is the wrong way to be headed. Completely. In your previous answer, you were very clearly leading us down the path to one of the sort of the popular topics in the business world at the moment, which is that of psychological safety and safe spaces. And we had Dr. Amy Edmondson on the podcast a, a few weeks ago, and she's really one of the leading thinkers, if not the leading thinker in the world on this from Harvard. So we have covered it in detail quite a lot and, and with Dr. Amy Edmondson very recently, but I would be interested in your take on this because you've introduced the idea to our conversation. How important are those safe spaces for you? And how do we create a space that is genuinely safe? Because one of the things that I've learned in these conversations around the topic that we've had is it's one thing to say, this is a safe space. It's quite another for people to believe you. <laughs> yeah, that isn't that the truth. For me, this comes down to requisite structure and guardrails and boundaries. So um, you can't possibly create psychological safety for every human being in your organization because their worlds are different. And that's almost like disempowering. I can't possibly know what feels psychologically safe to another person. I have no clue what's going on in their life or what might feel unsafe to them. But what I can do is create boundaries, guardrails, structures, mechanisms through which if they need to raise grievance, issues of oppression, issues of prejudice, issues of any sort, that there is enough structure within an organization for people to feel like they're held by that structure and there's enough room within that structure and the conditions and the culture within that structure to be able to to meet where people might need something different or where maybe we've created an environment where that isn't the case. But for me, it's a mixture of, whilst like given what I do for a living, a lot of it is about people and quite soft feeling and emotional stuff. I kind of paradoxically also talk about that has to come with some boundaries because if there's no boundaries, an example I always use is when I'm in a therapeutic session with a client, I don't just let them turn up and, you know, let them like that we have a set amount of time and we sign a contract to agree what that will be. And because there has to be a safe container for that conversation to happen in. If there wasn't a safe container, then some of the Trump, the, the, the stuff they need to talk about wouldn't be safe to be contained. Now, that's the second time in our conversation that you've mentioned the agreements that you sign with your clients. Now, obviously, you're not going to suggest that every professional relationship requires a, <laughs> a formal contract. But how important is a clear mutual understanding of what each party expects, is trying to achieve, 
will address a conversation. And, and how do you achieve that in a less formal environment where a contract is not going to be appropriate? But how do you create that similar kind of mutual understanding? Yeah, clearly you're not going to sign a contract in a less formal environment. But you could still agree what the outcome of whatever you're doing needs to be. You can spend time well spent at the beginning of sessions, meetings, agendas with where is everybody at? Like what is going on here? I think there's lots of ways, like back to the leadership, you know, if the more senior person in a room actually says, this is how I'm feeling about it. I'm a bit worried about this. The, the sharing of kind of vulnerability, I think goes a long way to a shared understanding of what, and I'm back again to the same point of what's really going on here. So it's a more open, transparent relationship. And that word again, and, and one that I love, the, the vulnerability, really helping people to connect. Yeah. And I think vulnerability gets overused. Like there's just a lot talked about vulnerability. And I, and, I, and I really want to make the point that to be vulnerable in some of these places, and I've been in this place, and this is a vulnerable situation for me. I don't do a huge number of podcasts, but to feel uncomfortable and still be able to enter into something that you feel is important, like that uncomfortable feeling isn't nice. There's something about staying with things that don't feel nice. It does feel nice, though, when you get to the end and it's worked out well. <laughs> it certainly does. Yeah. One, one last thing, and I think this, this does follow on from what we've just talked about to, to a degree, uh, and the vulnerability, because one of the things that stops that and the honesty and the transparency and it's a conversation that, again, comes up on multiple occasions in, in the professional conversations I have with clients, is how can they be open, transparent, yes, vulnerable, and build a collaborative, honest relationship with someone that they might be in competition with? People are always worried about office politics. They're always worried about the person who's trying to get the promotion before them or get the credit for the project they're both working on. How do we navigate that so that we can both create a real connection with the people who can support us in our journey and, and get to that end goal while not being naive in doing so? I think some of that is the requisite structure again, how we set goals and performance measures in organizations actually get in the way of this sometimes. Like we deliberately set people against each other rather than a, to a collective goal. So I would fundamentally rip up how we manage performance management systems. I think they're a waste of time often. We need to remember more often that it's not a zero-sum game. So we're back to binary. Like if you win, I don't lose. And sometimes in particularly western capitalist business culture there is this kind of if i win then you lose how we change that is through the structures through the like, what we value there's a brit mark carney did some wreath lectures a few years ago four or five years ago if anybody's interested i'd highly recommend you listen to them and, and the whole series of lectures was about what do we value that's mark carney as in the governor, governor of, the of england the yeah and he ended by saying the world is facing an environmental crisis from which nobody can self-isolate because it was on the back of COVID. And I think he beautifully makes the point, given the role that he had, that what we value and what we choose to value personally, organisationally, 
nationally, I think is really what's at stake when we're in competition with somebody. Like, what are we really valuing here? And that goes back to your point about being honest with yourself about what you're really trying to achieve and what are you bringing to the table. And And quite often when I career coach people and they're, they're struggling in their job, very often it comes down to their personal values not sitting well with the values of the organization they work with. I think think that's brought us a, a, a perfect circle and I've really enjoyed the, the, the conversation we've had under the table and <laughs> uh, maybe I should rephrase that, but we are virtuals just to, so that people understand. But some really fascinating insights there and I've really enjoyed our conversation. Dawn, thank you so much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. So thanks again to Dawn. Uh, We got there in the end. We got there. It took several attempts, but it was worth it because, um, as we said in that conversation, I think that you know we we got deeper. We 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 were in better flow with each other than than our efforts the other day. Um, And so technology perhaps produced a better result in in that sense. There's so much to draw from that conversation. I do love the the phrase of the conversation under the table. What else is going on here? And I think that makes sense probably to everyone listening, but how much do we think about that and apply that in our everyday conversations? And that's my biggest concern because I know most people who are listening to this, you are probably exceptionally busy. One of your biggest challenges is juggling all of these ideas while dealing with stuff minute to minute, let alone day to day. And it, it, like so much of this, it's about building habit, building muscles. And if you can just take that time to just ask yourself, what is going on for me here? What is going on for the other person? To allow those pauses between conversations. And I was so much more conscious than I normally am. And, and I imagine as a listener, you were as well, of the pauses in, in conversation between me and Dawn. And when I came in a bit too early or she spoke over me or so on, that, that stuff, it all happens. But then we can start to work with that and and understand what's going on there and develop that over time as, as we build greater rapport and, and build deeper relationships. So lots to take away. We'll try and get a couple of links that Dawn mentioned into the show notes for you. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. A lot of people come and listen to the podcast because it's promoted very kindly by our guests as well. So if this is the first time you've listen to a Connected Leadership podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm sure if you follow Dawn already, you've enjoyed it from that perspective. We have a lot of fantastic guests on the podcast. So please hit that subscribe button and and stick around for a bit longer and join us again for another episode of the Connected Leadership podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.